Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thank you for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm Claire Gowan. We're doing a slightly different format today in honor of our 4th of July episode because, as our listeners may or may not know, especially in the St. Louis area, you can actually come to Washington University and see a rare copy of the Declaration of Independence. To talk about this document, um, I'm sitting down with curator Cassie Brand and law and history professor David Koenig. Thank you to both of you for joining us. It's a privilege. Thank you. So I hear that this copy of the Declaration of Independence is called the Southwick Broadside. What is that exactly? Why does it have that name? A broadside refers to a piece of printing where it's printed on only one side of the paper. So you can think of something like a poster. And broadsides were often posted in public places in order to get news out. So there are different nicknames for the different copies. The Dunlap broadside was the first one printed. Ours is called the Southwick broadside because it was printed by Solomon Southwick in Rhode Island. Well, that's a good, that's a good way to put it. Uh, they're printed on one side uh, because they're often plastered onto a wall in a public place, either outside a church, town hall, courthouse, or something like that. And they were never intended to be permanent documents. That's why so few are left. Of the 200 or so broadsides that were published at the time, very few, fewer than, what, a dozen and a half, I think, uh, exist uh, at the present. They were tossed away. But they were also read publicly. And that's the important thing to understand. And uh, we have to see that they are um, a revealing aspect of what was going on at the time, but also a revealing aspect of how popular mobilization works. Revealing in what way? Well, the, uh, to understand the context of the time and how people would respond to it and why a broadside was so important and why Congress insisted and took such efforts. Uh, in fact, as you know, the Declaration, the text of the Declaration was voted on on July 4th, 1776. It uh, was then sent to a printer in Philadelphia for copies to be sent on horseback to each of the individual now states rather than colonies to be read publicly. And the uh, purpose uh, is uh, to make sure that the public, who are now going to be a mobilized democratic populace, understand what is really going on and are not being misled by rumors. Uh, rumors were very, very dangerous uh, at the time and quite a source of fear. We might even compare them to uh, fake Twitter feeds uh, that we have so uh, often today. Uh, to give you an example of this, uh, in September of 75, when the Congress was assembling in Philadelphia, news reached Philadelphia that the British fleet was bombarding the port of Boston, that it, had, it was raining fire, hell, and brimstone on the people of Boston uh, after um, an event that, uh, actually an insignificant event at the time, a small British detachment raided an armory and uh, confiscated some of the weapons that the militia uh, had accumulated. But by the time the report of that episode reached Philadelphia, the fact that no one had been killed, that there were no injuries, was completely forgotten. And the news that reached Philadelphia, and indeed much of the countryside around Boston, was that 
Seven men had been killed, how the number seven came up, who knows? Seven men had been killed and that the British fleet was now bombarding the town of Boston, killing men, women, and children indiscriminately. Well, um, any moment of thought would have revealed this to be a bogus rumor, uh, certainly because Boston was a, a haven for loyalists who were fleeing the patriot cause and were taking protection or looking for protection under the guns of the British fleet, not to be massacred by the British fleet. Even so, tens of thousands of militiamen mobilized and marched on Boston uh, to uh, basically counter what the British were doing. Well, as soon as the news finally reached Philadelphia a second time, that is, it took five days for the news to get to Philadelphia, the delegates to the Continental Congress were frightened. They had left wives and children at home uh, in Boston and were completely dreading the fact that their families may have been killed in this indiscriminate slaughter. So it became necessary for the Congress, when the Declaration of Independence was voted on, that is to say when Congress officially now announced to the world what was happening, that a true story, that the true facts, that no, shall we call them, fake news stories uh, reached the American people. And we have to understand that what the broadside did, it was then taken on horseback as a, just to pick up the story, to Rhode Island where Samuel Southwick, a local printer, ran off many copies of this to be read in courthouses and churches and so on across Rhode Island, that by that time, uh, it was necessary to do two things. One, to get the story straight and to have it be official, not just word of mouth, because it was read publicly by town councilmen, by ministers and so on, who were regularly recognized sources of authority and information. That's the important thing too. The second is that the Declaration, as you read it, is a very reasoned, cool, um, and logical type of argument. It is not intended to inflame wild emotion, which is often the case with rumor, gossip, or shall we say, Twitter feeds uh, these days. So we have to see it in its time as a document that uh, was necessary to the as I say, the mobilization of a democratic populace to understand what was going on and why. How do you think people reacted to this broadside when it was first displayed in 1776? Well, I, th I think they uh, heaved a sigh of relief uh, that uh, Congress was taking the steps that they had expected, uh, that it was not a wild inflammatory indictment that would embarrass the Congress and just, shall we say, feed uh, British hostility to the colonists as wild-eyed demagogues and Democrats. So I think there was a great sense of relief. Uh, we should also emphasize that it was read to the troops uh, at, in the Continental Army. And it, this is a way to mobilize again or to encourage and to draw them into an understanding of what politically and democratically was going on. So hundreds of years later, this document came to WashU. Um, Cassie, could you tell us anything about that story? How did it end up here? So I know that it was purchased by the Newman family, I believe in the 40s, if I'm remembering correctly. And um, rumor around the library has it that uh, one of the family members actually carried it in a frame under his arm when he brought it in for donation. And I love that story. But it was hanging in their house for quite a few years before they donated it to WashU. 
I'm sure that's a true story. <laughs> and it, it's fitting because that's how these ephemeral documents were treated at the time. Mm -hmm. In fact, if you look at it carefully, you can see the folds uh, in the document that we have that show how this was folded and thrown into a, a saddlebag. Mm -hmm. And you can still see the folds, and there was actually um, some missing paper along those folds. You can see some holes along the top that may have been from hanging it somewhere. The physical document actually shows a lot of that history. So with that sort of damage, how do you go about conserving the document and displaying it now that we no longer are planning to fold it up and throw it in a saddlebag? <laughs> no, we are definitely not allowed to fold it up anymore, throw it into a saddlebag, or carry it around under our arm. But um, we actually sent it to the Northeast Document Conservation Center, the NEDCC, uh, where they have experts in conservation who work on these kinds of documents all the time. And they did um, significant amounts of testing before they actually um, did any treatment. And some of the things that they did was use a dry brush to get rid of some of the dirt that it accumulated on the surfaces. They repaired the holes and filled them in and dyed um, the paper that they repaired it with to match the document. There had been some silk placed over the document in an earlier conservation treatment um, to help stabilize the paper, but that was removed in order to make the document clearer to read again. Um, they flattened it and they actually gave it a bath, which terrifies me a little bit because they submerged the entire piece of paper in water and an alcohol solution. And they are experts, so they know what they're doing. I wouldn't want to submerge any paper in water, um, but they tested it first to make sure that it would hold up. And of course, we're talking about early paper that's made from linen and cotton rather than wood pulp, so it holds up a little bit better to those types of treatments. But you can see the difference in the in the physical copy as compared to the digital copy we have on display, because the digital copy was um, before conservation, so you can kind of do a side-by-side -side comparison in the case. And inside the case, we keep the light levels very, very low. Um, we've had a lot of people comment on that. You have to let your eyes adjust a little bit before you can actually see the document, and that's to reduce fading, but also light can make paper more brittle. So we keep the light levels low, we keep the temperature and humidity very constant. We have monitors in the case that are making sure there's no fluctuations so that we can display it long term. So in addition to the document itself, you mentioned there is a digital copy and you can sort of click on certain phrases and learn more. What excites you about presenting the document in that way with these new technologies? It's more interactive. We have the declaration behind a large piece of glass where you can't really interact with it. You can view it, which is really exciting, but you can't touch it, you can't play with it. And the digital screen allows you to interact in a different way, so you can learn more about certain phrases that were used, things that were taken out, the funny um, long S that looks like an F, um, and how they were using that in spelling. You can also turn the document over in the digital version, which you can't do in the physical. So you can see how it's um, signed on the back for, I, I believe it's the town of Warwick. So when people come to see the document, either students who are here every day going through Olin Library or perhaps visitors who come specifically to see the declaration, what, what sort of experience do you hope that they have when they, when they see this document, which probably most people don't see in their lifetime too often? I hope they'll get you know, kind of a sense of awe and like they're standing in front of history. And the chamber has been designed in this really cool way. So you walk into this dark space, but you kind of have to turn around so you can see it on display there in front of you. And you can get fairly close um, up to the glass and the, the declarations not too far on the other side. So you can really 
get a sense of it. Um, we also have an auxiliary case on the side, which allows us to do rotating displays of different smaller exhibits. Currently, we have an exhibit on Jefferson's Library on display. We have the third largest collection of Thomas Jefferson books. And of course, he's the author of the Declaration, so it's really nice to put his books next to his written work. What about you personally, you know, encountering these documents? You deal with rare books all the time, and David, as a historian, you encounter rare materials, but the Declaration of Independence is something pretty special, I would think. It is, it is, and as one of the editors of Jefferson's Papers uh, for the Princeton University Press, um, I work with his writing all the time. And when I look at the Declaration, I look at it as I look at many of his other writings, which is that uh, it goes through many drafts before it gets there. So it's interesting to see the original draft, which is available right here in our own library in the Jefferson Papers collection. But it's also interesting because Cassie made a good point that we're looking at history. And that means we're, we're transporting ourselves into the past. And we hope, we hope we're doing that. And the past, it's been said many times, is a different country. They speak a different language there. And a lot of the language in the Declaration has to be understood as of its time and place of the 18th century. And I think that's why the interactive quality of the exhibit, where people can actually touch uh, the electronic, the digital uh, edition, and can bring up commentary about it is extremely revealing uh, that when uh, Jefferson says life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, uh, happiness meant a little something different. It didn't mean, didn't mean fun because the English language is a very limited language in that sense. Uh, I mean, it, it's not, the French have lots of words for it. They can use plaisir, uh, for example, or bonheur uh, for happiness, but they also have the term felicité, which means well-being. And I think that's what happiness means in the Declaration. So if we, we can approach it better on its own terms now by seeing it placed in the context that the interactive display really permits. What about you, Cassie? Do you have any personal reactions to the document? Well, I remember being just completely flabbergasted when I learned um, that there was a Declaration of Independence in the collection that I was responsible for. And it was one of those moments where you're like, okay, this, this is big. I need to make sure that I learn more, that I you know, know what I'm talking about for a podcast such as this, um, and that I can you know, create an experience that allows people to stand in that room with history and really be able to learn from this document. And thankfully, I have a wonderful team of people um, who've helped me with that, including Professor Koenig. But it was just one of those moments where I was like, oh, I get to be in the same room with this. this. I, I've actually got to touch it. Really? Yes. Very carefully, very gently, trying very hard not to sneeze or cough. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine that's very important. Uh, is there any special programming coming up for Fourth of July or events, or are you just hoping people come visit? I think a little bit of all of that. We're actually closed on the 4th of July, but we'll be open on July 3rd, and we'll be doing some programming. We're hoping that people come to visit. We're still figuring out what exactly that programming is going to be, um, but hopefully we'll have a talk. I think we're going to do a display of some of our other items related to the Declaration and the Founding Fathers because we actually have one of George Washington's land deeds that was handwritten by him, of course, Thomas Jefferson's collection of books. Um, I think we have an Alexander Hamilton signature. So other things that people can explore. And those will be on display um, so that people can interact with them in a different way. 
Yeah, the long-term benefits of this are, are, are considerable. I, I think it, it's, it's good to have something that will bring people in and reveal to them what this library holds and how significant these things are and what it can mean for their own appreciation of the past. I mean, when I uh, would teach my Thomas Jefferson seminar, I made it a point to bring out the books that Cassie referred to that Jefferson actually owned and to let them feel them, pick them up, see his scribbles in the margins, which they're not encouraged to duplicate, uh, and to understand that he actually held these. In fact, it's one of my speculations that we have a copy of a book that probably he was reading the day he died. And Professor Koenig makes a really good point. Um, you know, the Declaration is behind glass, as are all of our exhibits, but in special collections, we really encourage students and visitors to have a hands-on approach. Of course, with hand washing and completely drying your hands, but we want the students to be able to interact with the books, to be able to turn the pages, and to use the books as books, not just display objects. That's right. I mean, a library is, is not a mausoleum. Uh, what it has as artifacts are to be understood as vehicles to understanding. And these books and the Declaration are not there to be worshipped. Uh, they are there to be pondered, they're to be engaged, they're to be used. And uh, I think the, the display that's out there is really a good gateway to that process. That's wonderful, and I hope that all of our listeners come by and take a look, um, either coming up to the 4th of July or sometime in the future. Um, is there any other comments that you like to share about the Southwick broadside or the Declaration of Independence? Well, there's a lot of good literature uh, on it. I mean, uh, Danielle Allen has a wonderful book called Our Declaration, which seeks to expand the scope of a document that has been seen as a as, a, as an assertion of white male property privilege. I mean, she has a different read on it that shows its, its significance beyond that. And um, David Armitage has a book on the use of the Declaration by other countries, how often the wording, the structure, has been copied, I mean, dozens of times by other nations, other peoples seeking self-determination. So it's an aspirational document, and uh, those two books, uh, in the, uh, just to begin with, uh, really get you to understand what power words can have. Well, thank you so much to both of you again for talking with me and to the Hold That Thought listeners. Really appreciate your time. And again, I encourage everyone to come take a look at the Declaration of Independence in the Olin Library at WashU. Well, thank you. 